message reach him from the outside? Except by that most valuable hunting ground ever given to the student of the unusual. Agony call. My name is Rick Cleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column Literary Magazine on Public Radio for the Central Coast, KUSP 88.9 FM and KUSP.org. On tonight's show, we're going to listen back to some of my conversations with NPR's beloved book critic, Alan Shoes, who died on July 31st. He'd been in a car accident on his way to visit Santa Cruz, as he did every summer for more than 30 years. He was 75 years old. I first met Alan in 2007 when we spoke about his collection of novellas, The Fires. We next spoke about his book, To Catch the Lightning, and after that we became friends and began a series of informal podcasts that I called Three Books with Alan Choose. In each of these, we'd read the same three books and then discuss them informally at some length. Over those years, we appeared together at the Capitola Book Cafe and Bookshop Santa Cruz. So tonight, we're going to hear excerpts from those years of conversations in a program dedicated to the voice of books, Alan Chews. Now, Alan loved to read from both his own books and those he reviewed. So we're going to start the show with Alan Chews reading from and then discussing his last novel, Song of Slaves in the Desert. This book is very, very unusual, and I just love the heck out of it. Uh, let's talk about the beginning, because you really begin at the beginning, and it seems kind of audacious. I mean, when you started this book, and you started writing this book like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, did you envision it having such a wide scope? Uh, no, frankly, no. Um, I. I didn't know how far and wide I was going to have to range in order to finish it, to make it work. But uh, I was perfectly willing to go as far as I go in this opening, which is about 35,000 years B.C. Um, Why don't you read us from the opening? I I really like that. It's a beautiful piece of prose. Just one page. Here's the, the first page. An eruption, the stone. The shock wave jarred them from sleep and sent them stumbling to their feet. Next came the roar of exploding earth and a sky in flames. From that maelstrom in the heavens did a voice call out to them, Go, hurry. The three of them, the man first, the woman following slightly behind, the child trailing off to one side, hurried away across the steaming plain, making their first marks, footprints, in the yielding layer of ash. Light shifted behind the veil of smoking sky. The rumbling went on and on. The man shouted at the gathering mist, coughing as he breathed. The girl slowed up, listed toward the plain, reached down and plucked at the ash. They walked, they walked, 
Light turned over, revealing a blue sky streaked with a long tail of smoke and ash. The girl pulled away from her mother, clutching something in her hand. This stone, relatively cool to the touch, born of an earlier eruption, this small egg-shaped stone, black, bluish, purple, mahogany, cocoa, dark fire within, three horizontal lines, one vertical, the same pattern carved into your high cheeks, take it and hold it to your lips. Taste earth and sky, the inside of a mouth, the lining of a birth canal, the faintest fleck of something darker even than the blackness through which it has passed. You have now kissed wherever this stone has been, and it has traveled far. Uh, so that that is my... Uh, it's like an invocation. Take, well, uh, and I think it really works that way. It brings good, us into the good, world. It's good. like a prayer in some ways. Well, I guess you could call it that. Um, it, it, it's my response to the photograph of the, that leaky dig where we see the footprints of this family, a man, a, a woman, and a child uh, in the ash of, uh, in the wake of this exploding volcano on the, the plain in northern Kenya uh, around 35,000 B.C., and that's the trail that I try to pick up in the rest of the novel. Now, <clears throat> this book didn't start out that way, though. You had a very different start for this book. I don't know if, how much I want to give away here, but uh, it started out with my uh, questions I had about uh, Jewish involvement in the uh, slave trade. I had read uh, some wild accusations by uh, some black nationalists that, uh, ranging from, uh, you know, the Jews bankrolled the transatlantic slave trade through, uh, you know, they were the largest uh, slaveholders in the United States, and uh, which, which was great black nationalist propaganda. Turned out, as, as a lot of propaganda does, it had a tiny sliver of truth in it, which they built on. Uh, what I discovered was, uh, by reading some uh, almost half a dozen historical accounts of Jewish involvement in, this, in the slave trade, uh, there were about 100 families in Charleston in, in uh, early 19th century uh, South Carolina, and about four of them owned plantations. So 4% um, of the Jewish population in Charleston. And I, I think that, so that's a larger percentage than the white population. I mean, you know, of the mil multi-millions in America, maybe 1% held slaves, but um, so there's a slightly larger percentage of Jews who own slaves than, than um, uh, Anglo-Saxon Americans. But in any case, um, I, as I read the histories, I began to try to imagine the lion and uh, uh, and I imagine this uh, son of a of a New York uh, import export man, uh, Jewish family, coming down to Charleston at his father's behest to look into the possibility of uh, buying into uh, the uncle's uh, plantation, rice plantation, which was about a thousand acres and a hundred slaves. Now, <clears throat> I'd like you to just. Tell me a little bit, uh, and, and I apologize for not really knowing, uh, are, 
are, you're from Russian Jews, is that correct? On or, my father's side. On yes. your father's side. Are you practicing? No. no. So I, I want tell us a little bit about your perception of your Jewish heritage and your perception of how that fit into your creating these characters. Uh, well, you know, it's part, part of my uh, legend, as it were, as the spies <laughs> would say. Um, I, I knew a lot about it because, you know, I went through the kind of conventional uh, Jewish upbringing uh, more, uh, you know, more in lip service than in practice. Uh, my, my family was not uh, practicing except at, on, on the high holy days. Uh, you know, which is the counterpart of the Christians who go to church on Christmas and Easter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I knew the law and I knew the uh, training. And uh, so if somebody says to you that your extended family was involved in a, some kind of horrible uh, institution, you want to look into it. That's really interesting. Now, um, I really love the voice. This is a novel of voices for me. And I love the voice of Daniel Pereira because he, Nathaniel Pereira. Nathaniel yeah. Pereira, Pereira, because he's somewhat self-important and mm -hmm. wordy, and, mm -hmm. and you you uh, create a guy who's like talks a little bit too much, and mm -hmm. I really love that kind of risk you take as a writer mm -hmm. uh, of doing that. So well, I he's a young romantic guy. Uh -huh. uh, his head's filled with poetry and. Uh, he has illusions about his life, and uh, he wants to go on the grand tour. He wants his father to send him to, to Europe to complete his education, but instead his father sends him down to Charleston to investigate the possibility of buying into this uh, rice plantation. So he's, he's kind of irritated by that. Um, and it's that irritation that generates, I think, a lot of the meandering in his own mind and uh, leads him into... Uh, a situation he never could have imagined before he uh, took the boat down to Charleston. Uh, I'd like you to talk about just creating that prose style because it mm -hmm. seems like um, it must have been a fun, it's really fun to read. Mm -hmm. it, it's a joy to read and mm -hmm. it's very, um, for a guy who kind of talks himself around a lot, it's really a, a kind of page turning prose. We really want to find out what he has to say. Mm -hmm. And it must have been fun for you to write and did you stumble into that voice? Did you re-keep approaching the character? I mean, how long did you live with this guy before you sat down to write his Well, journals? some years, but I mean... When, some years? <laughs> when he started writing and talking, I mean, I knew how I wanted him to sound, mm -hmm. which was, uh, you know, he, he kind of writes himself as the, the hero of a kind of slightly bad uh, romantic novel of the period. <laughs> So the question is, um, and I have to say more reviewers than not did not say this, but, you know, one reviewer said, oh, this, this is terrible prose. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the trick is to make it sound real but not make you think it's terrible. It's brilliant. It's totally readable. I really enjoyed it. And I Good. think that once you, I mean, it's, he's very engaging. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you do very well is play with the reader's knowledge of the period yes. and the, and give us, it's one of those situations where we know a little bit more about things mm -hmm. than he did. And, yes. and, that, and that lends it a, a lot of reading pleasure. And I'm wondering, um, 
you know, you're a guy who reads and reads a lot of books, and I think that's part of what plays into your skills and strengths as a writer is that you have an understanding of how people who sit down and really read and take in books to read for pleasure, why they do that. Well, I, I, I hope that's true. Uh, in Nathaniel's case, you realize that you know, when you get to a certain point in the novel, you realize that, he, well, you know he's, been, he's writing this down as, as recollection. And at a certain point, uh, you know, he goes in the Civil War mm-hmm. and doesn't come out the other side. So, and and his, uh, his prose, his pages are, are left for someone else to pick up and, and, uh, and complete. Now, uh, as it, the plotting of this book is really clever, too, because we have Daniel's story, but then we have these other parts, and, and the, this invocation and kind of prayer you read to us mm-hmm. uh, to the mm-hmm. beginning is this other thread, and these are written in a very different tone and a very different voice, and they tell a very different story. Mm-hmm. So what made you realize that you needed, and you really do need to, as we read the no- novel, you really do need to tell that story? What made you realize that? When did you realize? How far were you into Daniel's story or Nathaniel's story when you realized that uh, you had to tell this other story? Well, I wrote all of Nathaniel's narrative and then realized it wasn't complete. Mm. Uh, and then I, I then wrote the second narrative strand and I realized that wasn't complete. And then I had to uh, work my way towards the end of the story and find someone who could put it all together or invent someone who could put it all together. Boy, that just, it's, that's so interesting because it's, uh, as readers... It's like trying to build a house from the attic down. Right? <laughs> well, well, one of First the we'll put up the roof. <laughs> then we'll put up the first floor. Well, you know, I guess that goes to our experience as readers, too. And and I think that's one of the things that makes it such a pleasure to read is that um, as we're putting together, you know, enjoying Nathaniel's story and enjoying these interstitial stories, and we'll talk a little bit more about those, um, trying to figure out how we're hearing this, why we're hearing Mm -hmm. this, and where we're leading, it really lends a, a lot of narrative urgency to the story and and was this something this sounds like something you had to like uh you had all the pe- you put all the pieces of the puzzle and then you had to figure out what the heck the picture was yeah and, I, and when i look back on it i realize that uh, you know i wasn't going to write a, a naturalistic narrative about the received truth of 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 uh, slavery and the certain northerners response responses to it um, i had to uh, invent an evolving truth as the story unfolded so that the truth of the story was true to the way in which we understand things in the world. Uh, you know, I could leave it to the historians to write something and say, well, this is as close to the truth as we're going to get. And it's not alive. It's it's factual, but it's not alive, whereas the novel was, it seems to me, the only really uh, imitation of life, as as Aristotle would talk about it if he had read novels. Um, you know, this is life as we perceive it, as we understand it, and, and truth is something alive and grows on us and grows with us as, as we read. So the, the horrors of the slave trade and the horrors of slavery, uh, Pache, Michelle Bachman, and Rick Santorum, who recently signed that uh, 
that pledge that said, well, s slavery wasn't all that bad because it kept the black family together. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the horrors of slavery are never that far from us. Are, are, you know, the horrors of slavery exist in our lives and in our imaginations today. The, 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 the facts of slavery come to life as we think about it. And, you know, in the case of people who are descended from slaves, it's in their DNA, it's on their skin. Um, as for those of us who are descended from people who kept slaves or might have kept slaves or who watched the institution evolve, it's there in our imaginations and, we, and we've got to um, understand it as something that evolves, something that we're thinking about all the time, something that's there in our daily lives every day. I, I think I can read this last paragraph without giving too much away, all right? Mm -hmm. The heart, old instrument, wonders, yes, and aches. The heart yearns, mourns, cries, but above all else, the heart hopes and longs to be free, even as the ground we tread on so unsteady where I grew up, and perhaps where you live too, trembles beneath our feet. Oddly enough, a faint tremor rattled Manhattan. Oh, the earth everywhere unstable. The moment I boarded the ship for Africa, my hand in my pocket, stone in my hand as I began my voyage eastward, hoping that I might find the last, or with luck, perhaps some of the first pieces of the truth of Eliza's life. Truth, ah, the truth, ever-changing, and yet remaining so steady, at least in the distance, that we follow it the way sailing ships follow certain stars to keep themselves on course in calm seas and stormy. So and I knew when I wrote that, I was, was finished. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. His new novel is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A great pleasure, Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column Literary Magazine on 88.9 KUSP and KUSP.org. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Let's get back to a program dedicated to the voice of books, my friend Alan Chews. Next, we're going to hear a raucous live program that he and I did with fantasy writer Peter S. Beagle at the Capitola Book Cafe. Peter, I, I'm not going to follow you around the country as the, you know, the, the fact-checking Beagle Squad, but I, I, there is another story now that you're s sitting here that I want to ask you about. As our mutual friend Al Young told me this story, and I'm, I think I'm remembering it exactly as Al told me. He's also me. a storyteller, remember? Yeah, right. <laughs> I've known them even longer than I've known you. He's riding in the back seat of your car. You're driving, uh, I think, your mutual friend Colleen McElroy is in the front, in the passenger seat. You're driving, or maybe she's driving, and you're in the passenger seat. If That's it's her car, um, she's driving. And and Al is, uh, he well, he's you know he's a prose writer as well as a poet, so he's looking through all the papers he finds in the back seat because <laughs> as prose writers do, they look through other people's mail. Of course. And he sees this envelope, and he and he looks at it. It's open, so he figures it can't. Hurt to take out what's inside. And he said he found there's a check made out to you from some movie producer for $50,000. And it was 
<laughs> and it was stuck under some old papers and newspapers in the back seat. And, and he said, uh, Peter, and you said yes, and he said, Peter, I just found a check, an uncashed check made out to you for $50,000 in the back seat here. And he says that you turned around and said to him, oh, Christ, I wondered where that check was. <laughs> Is that true? Let's put it like this. The story and the reaction are true, but being a storyteller, he has added at least one and probably two zeros <laughs> to that check. See, I've been envying you for years now. Hell, I, I envy me too. <laughs> um, it's a marvelous story, and I wish to God it were true. I've, I've known it. I've known it to be true at least or in, in, I'm known as legend about other people. Babe Ruth was paid $25,000 once for some endorsement, and he liked to carry that check around uncashed so that when he was in a bar with friends and it was his turn to buy a round, he'd say, well, if anybody can cash this and whip out the check. <laughs> and he carried it around with him until a certain November day in 1929. You know, um, talking about large checks, um, years and years and years ago, our, our Dear late friend Jim Houston and I drove up to Marin to visit Wright Morris. I'd never met Morris before, and Jim was going to introduce me to him. And Morris had just won um, and, and one of those NEA Old Masters Awards, and it was a $25,000 uh, honorarium. So he heard, that he heard us drive up, and we knocked on the door, and he opened the door holding a huge... Uh, replica of this $25,000 check, <laughs> almost as large as this table. And that was back when that was money. That was big money. Yeah. You know, Alan, you were talking about uh, memory. And, and one of the things that uh, strikes me is that a really good prose piece, like either one of the ones we just heard, um, for the reader, when we read them and immerse in them and come back from them, the way we visit those things in our memory is like as if they are our memories. Mm -hmm. And the best prose writing can become mm -hmm. like that kind of, construct well, that kind of yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that. I mean, there are a number of, of states of consciousness, right? There's waking, right, Robert? <laughs> Most of us are awake. <laughs> Sleeping. Meditation, we know that you know, the scientists have verified that the, your brain waves are different in meditation than they are when you're sleeping or waking or dreaming, which is the fourth state of consciousness. But I, I think uh, what happens to us when we're lost in a piece of good prose or poetry, uh, what John Gardner used to say is, describe as falling into this waking dream, I think that's another separate state of consciousness. And I think just as Dreaming and meditation are extremely important to your mental health. I think reading good prose and poetry is in extremely important to your to your mental health. Do you think well? well, yeah. I mean, if you think of um, dance, I mean, that state when I mean, why? What happens to us when we watch really great dance? We move our souls with the dancers. You know. Most of us, you know, would trip and fall on our asses to, to trying to do one step. But w watching a great dance performance, we move, our, our souls move with it. And I think that's extremely therapeutic also. Um, 
so I, I think probably there's a correlation with uh, vision. We see more deeply than normal when we look at a great painting or a piece of sculpture. One thing that one thing that does happen during there are certain phrases I'm very leery of using. One's the creative process. Another one is inspiration. I grew up around artists and musicians and. I can't recall ever hearing any one of them use the word. Perspire, but not inspire. Yes. But there is a thing, at least for me, that happens when I'm actually, I don't know what to call it, paying attention or paying more attention than I usually do. I'm absent-minded. I'm prefer, I'd rather be reading at any given moment, almost. and. My mind wanders. It is, God knows, the monkey, man, the monkey mind, certainly. It chatters in half a dozen different tongues. But I'm actually working properly. The phrase I use is sort of screwing down tight on whatever it is I'm doing, like a microscope or a vice, something else. I don't know how else to put it, and I wish I could get to that state more often because it makes a difference in what I do. And in the quality. Think, Schmuck. Yeah, it comes down to that. That's exactly it. It comes down to that kind of thinking. It's that, that, um, there's that wonderful story, I don't know if this really applies, but that Olivier tells in his autobiography about working with Dustin Hoffman in the movie Marathon Man. Um, if you remember that movie, uh, he plays the evil the guy. The, the and he, and he, Nazi dentist. Nazi dentist, and he gets... Uh, Hoffman in his chair and tortures him with the, the dental job. And he describes how uh, Hoffman disappeared from the set for a week before that scene. And he showed up completely disheveled. Obviously, he hadn't slept in a week, hadn't washed in a week, hadn't shaved in a week, sat down in the chair and screamed and moaned. And, and at the end of the scene, Olivier said, That was marvelous, dear boy. That was marvelous. And Hoffman said, well, you know, I didn't sleep for a week. I didn't bathe for a week. I didn't shave for a week. I just, you know, thought and thought and thought and thought about what it was like to be tortured. And I tortured myself and I tortured myself. And then I tortured myself again. And Olivier says, well, I, I said to him, well, you did an admirable job. But next time, dear boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I, want, I once met... I once met one of the best screenwriter I've ever encountered, Larry Gelbart, who wrote things, who created MASH, and wrote an astonishing number of wonderful scripts and plays. He's one of the gentlest people I've ever met. You couldn't get Gelbart to, to badmouth anybody, which for coming out of the Hollywood world, where that's dinner table conversation was unusual by itself. The nearest he got to it was talking about working with Dustin Hoffman on Tootsie. And all he would ever say about that was to learn one thing in the future, try not to work with an Oscar-winning actor who's shorter than the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> For Gelbart, that was bad-mouthing. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column Literary Magazine on 88.9 KUSP and KUSP.org. In the second half of the show, we'll hear more from my program dedicated to the voice of books, Alan Chews. 
At first breath, I knew I'd arrived in a special place. The freshly narcotic air outside our hotel porch, embossed with the perfume of frangipani blossoms and tube roses. The old temple wall we walked along just as soon as we arrived at the airport at the capital Dempasar. The huge statue at the traffic rotary at the airport exit, commemorating a battle from the great Hindu epic, the Ramayana. The small temples within the family compounds that we passed on a drive from the beach up into the mountains of North Bali. The skirts of checkered material, black and white for yin and yang, good and evil, and the offerings, the ubiquitous offerings of flowers and incense in every doorway, on every set of steps, in the ledges of the stone shrines that line the roadways, more numerous by hundreds than post boxes along an American street. The little altars everywhere proclaimed that people here, at worst, elevated what we Westerners normally take to be mere superstition to everyday reality, and at best, gave it a good name. Welcome back to the Agony Column Literary Magazine on 88.9 KUSP and KUSP.org. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. We're going to get back to my program dedicated to NPR's voice of books, Alan Chu's. We're going to hear the last in the three books with Alan Chu's podcasts that he and I did, which was recorded earlier this year. Alan Shoes is NPR's Voice of Books for All Things Considered. His new book coming out this month is Prayers for the Living. Thank you for joining me, Alan. As always, a pleasure, Rick. We have uh, three wonderful books to talk about this week. Let's start with Michael Robotham, Life or Death. Yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's a flat-out thriller, and it's, it's got a neat plot. Uh, which we can talk about in a little bit, but even before we go there, I mean, this is a book set in Texas, uh, in the Texas prison system and the environs of Houston. And the remarkable thing about it, he is an Australian novelist who came to Texas and he spent something like six or seven, eight weeks doing research and then went home to write this book. I mean, he did, you know, research on the sites, and he interviewed people who worked in the prison system and, and, and law enforcement around Texas. And he went back, and he's written this novel that you'd think was, uh, you know, by somebody who grew up uh, in, in East Texas or, or, or South Texas. Just amazing. I don't think I know anybody who could go to South Africa or Australia and nose around for five or six weeks and write a novel as if they had lived there for all their lives. So it's really quite extraordinary from the outset. And it just, but it reads so smoothly, uh, you know, it just makes you forget all about all these technical questions. I think it's a, maybe the best uh, airplane read, so-called, that I've, I've uh, found all year. Uh, no, no turbulence will bother you if you're reading this one while well, 37,000 feet up above the earth. It, it just reads so smoothly because of this great plot that unfolds. Um, it opens with this prisoner in, you know, in a prison in East Texas breaking out of prison the day before his sentence is up. And that question hovers over almost the entire novel. You know, why would this guy become a fugitive 
with only one day left to serve. This guy's name is Audie Palmer, who got put away for 10 years after being convicted in a major armored car robbery outside Conroe in East Texas. He was uh, fired. He was shot in the head by a sheriff nearly, at nearly point-blank range, and they put him in the prison hospital. And then, remarkably, they don't send him to prison for life. They only give him 10 years. And here he is on, you know, the novel opens the night before his sentence is up, and he flees. He's planned this escape. And the sheriff who shot him originally in that just after the robbery starts chasing after him and all these political, powerful political people who try to get him also. There's a, I mean, they have a lot of power, so they get this killer named Moss, who was Palmer's uh, cellmate, out of prison and set him on the trail, promising him that he'll be free if he uh, catches up with Palmer. And this chase goes on. And then we dip back into Palmer's past, and we little by little we learn a lot about him until finally the the expository dramatic scenes catch up with the present chase and it you know the whole thing falls into place with a not an explosion but a kind of really major settling in of truth it, i mean this is a great chase novel i mean i really loved it i was thinking when you were talking about how he He's an Australian who comes to Texas. I was thinking, you know, one of the things that's nice about this novel is the landscape. And, you know, the landscape, portions of the landscape of the, of Texas and Australia are are not dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And actually, while you're mentioning that, I'm thinking the, the, the South African woman, Lauren Bukes, is it, who mm-hmm. uh, has published a couple of books set in the U.S. I mean, she's done that same thing, come and done research. But there's just... This uh, Robotham's plot is such that it really just catches hold of you, uh, I, pulls I, you along. I thought the plot was really well done. It's very nice to the way it's, you know, intricately woven. It's interesting that a novel that's so engaging and really engrosses you and catches you up in this great chase, it's easy to miss how intricately um, mm-hmm. put together it is. It's right. really finely, finely written in terms of putting in the plot pieces, creating a lot, a whole raft of sympathetic characters, people we like, people we don't like, but people, all of them, we like to read about. Yeah. And that's a, a real trick. You... And, and the plot remi- reminds me of that uh, little chapbook that uh, Ross MacDonald wrote years and, well, decades and decades and decades and decades ago about how he put together his wonderful novel, Underground Man. It really just explains how he put a thriller together. You go to the last scene and write backwards. <laughs> so, I mean, I know a lot of people who've tried to write thrillers forward, and what happens is you spend a, waste a lot of time with plot lines that go nowhere. But if you know where the book is going from the start, you can backtrack quite easily. Well, this is a really, I think, an intense novel to read. It just keeps you uh, completely engrossed in what's going on in the past, what's going on in the future. And also, these kinds of novels are very much readers' novels because you as a reader participate so much in putting together the different Mm -hmm. threads. You see different things 
uh, different times, different characters, everybody converging. But you as a reader get this really pleasurable task of putting it all together. And you and it's like you're weaving a, you know, a sweater from somebody else's design. Yeah, but, and then at the very end, you, it comes together and you go, wow, that fits right, perfectly. But, but let's not give anybody the impression that it's work to read this. I mean, it's just... Oh, no. I mean, it's like eating cotton candy. (laughs) (laughs) Very, you know, the thing that will give you a lot of pleasure, you know, in between reading your your serious protein books, right? (laughs) Right. But it it also, you know, he makes a plot with the, the certainty... And the power of you know a very old Greek tragedy. I mean, he, he knows how to. This guy knows how to make a plot, and it goes all the way back to that tradition of plot making that we find in in, uh, in antique Greece. We all really love a great plot, and this novel, Life or Death, has a plot, and I think it actually it lives up to the title, and that's a tough title to live up to. Yeah, and an even harder title to die by. <laughs> 12 Days by Alex Berenson is another John Wells novel. So with this one, I think, you know, this is a a sequel. Right. I mean, well, it's, you know, over the last, was it, 10 years and eight novels, uh, Berenson, who's a former New York Times reporter, has made, has created a franchise. And Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the great franchises in the thriller field. Uh, You know, Wells, was a is a former CIA field operative who one of the was it the first novel or the second novel I think it's the first one converts to Islam and he goes on to take on some of the world's worst people dangerous terrorists and, and people who want to uh, trample down governments and take huge global power uh, and you know in this book he he got so much going. Well, it's actually, it begins in The Counterfeit Agent, The Counterfeit Agent, uh, the book before this one, where he has so much going on, he can't publish it in one volume alone. So this is really the second volume of The Counterfeit Agent. Uh, it's about the possibility of a war erupting between the U.S. and Iran, that agents uh, under, as they call it in the CIA, flying a false flag, have stirred up. Uh, and so it presents a lot of problems for a new reader to this novel because there's a lot of exposition that comes right up front. Um, you know, in case you haven't read The Counterfeit Agent, you have to know that, uh, you know, I'll read a quotation, Wells had quit the Central Intelligence Agency years before, et cetera, and, and other stuff like, a few weeks before, Iran had begun a secret campaign against the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really too bad for new readers if they if they have to do this catch up and it's bad for readers who read the counterfeit agent because they know all this stuff already and so they have to endure the all you know the unloading of all this exposition and which takes you know dozens of pages last week on lost right but you know <laughs> that after said saying, after saying that right the novel really picks up uh, momentum and the countdown uh for you know the possibility of war between the U.S. and Iran is comes down to twelve days, and and uh, the novel unfolds in that way: day one, day two, day three, day four. And Wells is fighting with his 
former CIA boss, who's now a U.S. senator, and then and they take on another CIA outlier. Uh, this trio is fighting against uh, a billionaire Jewish American friend of Israel, an enemy of Iran, named Duberman. You know, hello, Sheldon Adelson, <laughs> and and he's fighting against the entire Iranian government. And the plot unfolds with, uh, you know, Wells playing David to the war plotters and Goliath. And it, becomes, it really becomes completely uh, engrossing. And uh, I think, you know, once n- newcomers to Berenson's work will, you know, pick up speed almost immediately as, as they get into the first couple of chapters. And uh, fans of Berenson's work, as I number myself, will you know, excuse the the exposition and, and catch up to the, the plot moving on rather rapidly fairly soon. Um, I mean, it really shows to me that Berenson's become so ambitious in his plot making that, it, you know, one novel, two novels can't hold his plotting anymore. Probably means there's a cable series in the offing, right? Well, uh, John Wells, Agent Extraordinaire or something like that. I... It's really nice to see a book. I actually, I <clears throat> I was heartened to see a thriller that um, was that ambitious to go out across two books to give itself the space to expand, but to have a, you know a really nicely complicated, rich plot to really ripen up all the characters to build momentum across two novels. I mean, that's an ambitious task. That's an ambitious goal. He realizes it well. Um, everything, the pieces fall into place nicely. Um, it has enough, you know, current day relevance with everything that's happening at this instant that it's mm-hmm. extremely terrorizing, I right. think, in that sense, in the way that uh, all the old crop of novels that were coming up around, uh, you know, the imminence of World War Three, mm-hmm. some 30 years ago that we used to read and you know, really enjoy, is World War Three going to happen? This is kind of just the rebirth of that kind of fiction. With oh, a, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. With a new uh, set of antagonists. And with that, let me, I was thinking maybe we could step back for a moment and that you and I and the thriller writers and the mystery writers of the world should just give thanks to today's golden crop of bad guys. There are so many potential bad guys out there in the world today. I mean, during the Clinton years, there was a real shortage of these things. Uh, with the, you know, the detente with the Russians and nothing too much was happening in the Middle East. These days, it's just a wide open. You can have, you have ISIL, you have narco-terrorists, you have Russians, Russian governments, Russian gangsters. We have, you know, the... Uh, Central European child kidnappers. We have the the wealthy, idle uh, Americans trying to siphon off, you know, the the wealth of the the poor. There is just no shortage of bad guys for thrillers in these days, and I think that makes for a much more engaging writing environment. I think that's yeah, well said. And I, but it, you know, to add on to that, I think there's no shortage of really good writers who will help you uh, understand some of this. Uh, you know, in, in, in fiction, of course, but uh, sometimes, you know, fiction is stranger than truth. 
Well, I think, too, um, what's nice is that the fiction writers these days are really well aware, they're well-versed, and they're well-studied in all the geopolitical background and sociopolitical mm-hmm. background of all these different antagonists and these people mm-hmm. preying upon, you know, the rest of us yeah. To, yeah. to give a really deep and, you know, you get kind of a nice history lesson or current history lesson in almost any one of these books. Yes, I think and probably the Internet helps a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, when you're, you're talking about the old, you know, say 30 years ago, I mean, and I think I, I realize this is a countdown novel in the mode of Day of the Jackal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just got much broader implications. It's not just one assassin in France. It's a group of people who are trying to start a war between the U.S. and Iran. But it is a countdown. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, or like failsafe. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember. True. That's true. Remember reading those books, and the uh, uh, again too. There's a whole string of uh, books written by Alistair MacLean, the Satan Bug. I mean, all those mm-hmm. old thrillers were kind of the fertile ground, the first crop. But I think today's uh, writers too have uh, pay more attention, a little more attention to character, pay mm-hmm. more attention to again the social economic consequences Mm -hmm. and you know the victims are more interesting and the villains are more um uh i think uh subtle there's more shades of gray in this it's leaps and bonds beyond james bond yeah (laughs) so we can just give thanks to uh, the other thing too about these thrillers is that the serial thriller has kind of, uh, it's catching up, if not passing, the uh, traditional uh, detective series, I think, in terms, just in terms of quantities that mm-hmm. are out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I realize that, uh, talking about countdowns, there's, of course, 24, um, which um, sure this novel echoes in a certain way. Although 24, if you, you know, which was revived this past year, very sad, almost a travesty of the old show. So, um, here's another way, if you'd like, 24 to set your stopwatch, <laughs> match it to your increasing heart rate. Now, when we're done with all these, uh, you know, kind of nicely done, st- these versions of nicely done steaks, <laughs> so to speak, uh, you can settle back for for the rich uh, literary work of um, Edith Perlman. New collection of short stories, and you can't go wrong with uh, Edith Perlman, National Book Critics Circle Award for binocular vision. I mean, this is a woman uh, at the top of her form with 20 stories that absolutely rock the house. Yeah, she has toiled in the fields a long time, and, and this is, I think it's, what, fourth or fifth collection, and it's the one that I think is going to introduce her to a much wider audience um, even beyond those uh, awards I mean she's got this wonderful Chekhovian sense of form but she also has these instant giddy moments of deep pleasure and insight out of the best of Malamud and Eudora Welty and Soul Bellow it's almost like sometimes she's doing push-ups and cartwheels on on the problems of love and hope and age and pain and sorrow and disappointment. But, it, you know, it's not at all dark. I mean, 
sometimes she's even working out the, uh, the antics of small insects and, and the nutty pleasures of adultery. Um, I mean, she's just a marvelous stylist who also has a, a wonderful sense of plot and, and this idiosyncratic way of, of presenting her material. I mean, the, the title story, Honeydew, it just it, it breaks a lot of rules. It ranges far and wide in just a few pages. Goes from you know the classrooms of a New England high school to the biblical desert, and takes us into the private life of an anorexic teenage girl, and you know the love lives of a group of adults who who who, who teach this girl or are parents to this girl. I mean, there are a dozen stories in this book that are, that rise up to this level of just the sublimity based on the the weird antics of ordinary people. Uh, and I like the ordinary of us, like oh, with Forget Me Not, where you have, you know, these middle-class, middle-age mm-hmm. <laughs> characters. I mean, that's a, I mean, uh, I might resemble that remark <laughs> and, and to, to find some, find them so evocatively and well-crafted in such a nice, concise way. I mean, it's really a beautifully written uh, piece of, of literature and it, these stories too turn very well use the form of the short story well in you know they're not like little novels they're short stories and I think that there's a, a difference there sometimes some short stories work well as little novels and but these yes, like Alice Munro mm-hmm. but she's as good as Munro but a, works a completely different style I, I would agree and I think that uh uh, the the virtue of this book too is it's really nice. These are any one of these is rich enough to read between. Um, well, for example, Alex uh, Berenson mm-hmm. and uh, Robertson, Robertson, Michael Robertson, and, and you know, to as a kind of a, as it were a literary palate cleanser, and they're rich enough to to stand up to that. They call, I mean, they really do call your attention to real life in a, in a wonderfully artful way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I have a better way to put it. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're beautifully crafted uh, looks at uh, the way most of us end up spending most of our time, and I think... And, you, know, and yeah. you learn things. You learn that the word honeydew comes from the biblical word for manna, that dew that settles over the, the desert, appears early in the morning on some of the vegetation, and people wake up and lap, lick it off the, the vegetation as their first food, food that falls from heaven. And uh, there's, you know, there are stories, too, uh, well, like that um, wait and see. Mm-hmm. The boy who can see in five colors. It's just a fascinating, you know, yeah. real concept, and it's beautifully worked out. It, it, it's uh, uh, this story. This, in terms of, uh, and that's not a bad analogy for this uh, collection. This, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, she's 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 got a, a really extraordinary uh, sort of vision. Yeah, I think that this the that the stories in this collection themselves are to are. To a certain extent, pentachronic, in, in mm-hmm. that they they take us beyond what the normal short story does, even though they look at things we see all mm-hmm. the time. 
Yes, read Eden Perlman, everybody. <laughs> That's right. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His forthcoming book is Prayers for the Living. It comes out later this month. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Calm Literary Magazine on 88.9 KUSP and KUSP.org. We're going to finish the show with Alan Shoes, reading live from his collection of short stories, An Authentic Captain Marvel Ring, and Other Stories. When I was thinking about what I would read, um, there are a number of West Coast stories here, and I thought, well, since I live in Washington most of the year, I'll read an East Coast story for you. Uh, and, um, it, and and especially since I had a pedicure today. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's about a, a man who um, goes to his wife's uh, pedicure parlor with her. It's called Nailed. So that's it, he said, as he and Marcy walked down the stairs to the street. I think you liked it, didn't you? I did, he said. And now I know a little more about your secret life. It's not all that secret, Marcy said. You can know as much about my life as you like. I'd like you to know about it. I want you to know about it. Well, he said, quiet until they reach the ground level. A man can only know so much. Is that right? There was something in her voice he couldn't identify, except he knew he didn't like it. He might have said more, but just then a tall, young, almond-skinned woman in a short skirt and sandals came in through the street door. She might have been the daughter of the woman who had cared for Wicker's feet. She could have been another customer. He stared at her beautiful calves and ankles and toes as he made way for her to climb past them. Damn, he said as he and Marcy stepped out onto the sidewalk. What? Marcy stopped and folded her arms across her chest, quite aside herself, a storm in the making. My toes feel so good. He gave her a big, big smile, which turned out to be exactly the wrong thing. Who knew why to do? Ah, oh, you know I saw you looking at her, and I saw you looking at Nan when we first came in. You like your toes. I hope they turn black and drop off. I hope you never walk again. Wow, Wicker said. What did I do to piss you off? I did everything you wanted. You don't know what I want, she said, quietly, as though they were standing in the middle of a crowd of strangers, except that no one else was anywhere near them. Do you know, he said. He clenched his fists, really suddenly angry. She turned and began walking away from the shop. A car came around the corner, but she kept on going. Hey, you'll get killed, he called after her. Not unless you kill me, she called back. Bye-bye, Miss Marcy. Mr. Bill, hope you like toes. Nan, the nail woman, called to them from the upper windows of the building. Marcy paid no attention. Wicker looked up. What did I do to deserve this, he said, but the Asian woman couldn't hear him. So he walked away, delicately as it happened because he suddenly felt a pain in his toes, in the big toe of his right foot to be specific. Had the woman cut him with her clipper? He stopped a moment, hoping to ease the pain. Marcy walked on. She didn't even look back. Was this how things would end? Ridiculous, with him standing there alone, his toe aching, possibly bleeding, people moving along the avenue oblivious to his pain. And then the face of his father came up between him and the people on the street, the cars, the traffic light. Is this 
what this is all about, his toes, his life, lying to Marcy, his father, unspeakable Vietnam. Now he found it difficult to breathe and he nearly forgot about his toes. His father opened his mouth as if to tell him something. How long since he had heard that voice? Could it speak from beyond the grave? Well, what the hell did he think was happening now anyway? Did his father congratulate him on having become so well-groomed? Did his father say how proud he was of the man he had become? You tell us, Bill. Take a deep breath and tell us what happens next. What in this whole wide world happens next? Find full-length versions of the interviews you hear on the show on my website, The Agony Column, at agonycolumn.com. You can friend The Agony Column on Facebook and get updates on new novels and books worth your valuable reading time on Twitter by following the hashtag pound WYVRT. And we're going to bring back from its vacation the hashtag pound RKBOTD, the Rick Cleffel Book of the Day. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel. Tune in every Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. for the Agony Column Literary Magazine on public radio for the Central Coast, KUSP. How does a message reach him from the outside? Except by that most valuable hunting ground ever given to the student of the unusual. The Agony Column.